Hello everybody, it's Natalie here from Genealogy Stories. If you haven't met me before, I'm Natalie. I'm a uh, family history addict, <laughs> a history obsessive. Um, I run a membership called Curiousons Club, which is all about finding and writing your family history stories. And every fortnight I pop on, pop on live with uh, different experts to talk about history and genealogy. And today I'm joined by David from Ireland. And uh, hi, David, would you mind introducing hi, yourself? <coughs> My name is David Ryan. I'm a professional genealogist and historian based in Cork City. And for those unfamiliar with Irish, you know, Irish geography, we're down in the, the very south. So we're the, the biggest county in Ireland. Okay, and great. we also possibly have the biggest chip on our shoulder, according to the rest of the country. <laughs> <laughs> so you're from the feisty part of Ireland, are you? Well, um, you know, for those who follow uh, soccer, you're they're now, no doubt uh, familiar with Roy Keane. So Roy Keane is a proud Corkman. So. Okay, okay, okay. And it's soccer that you follow rather than football. Well, yeah, I'm saying, you know, he's, uh, you know, for for soccer fanatics, he, you know, they'd be very familiar with okay. him, I imagine. Yeah. You can see why I'm looking really blank here. Yeah. <laughs> I'll take your word for it. <laughs> so, um, David, I know that you are a um, professional genealogist, um, you know, offering services, helping people to discover their Irish ancestors. But how did you start um, tracing your family history and, and kind of what led you down that path? Um, you know, I, I always loved history and I have memories as a small child. Whenever we'd visit my, my paternal grandparents, there'd nearly always be somebody else stopping by. You know, that was just the way it was in rural Ireland. You didn't, you know, you didn't ring someone up to check if they were in. You just... You assumed they'd be there and you, you know, you stopped by. That was the, you know, it was, there'll always be somebody else there who was a distant relation. And I see, there'll always be that curiosity of, you know, okay, how are we, how are we related to these people? That would be the same with, with, you know, my mother's side of the family because they're, they lived, you know, fairly close by. And I have another memory of coming across this uh, sort of, you know, one of these fancy coat of arms surname histories. Yeah. That's, you know, you can pick up at all the tourists. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it had this whole thing about saying, oh, how Ryan's were, were kings of Tipperary or something like that. I remember, you know, oh, I'm descended from royalty. I'm feeling quite, you know, quite proud of myself until I actually began, you know, researching, well, what did medieval kingship in Ireland mean? And, you know, being king of an area was, it's like being, you know, it's like, you know the mayor of a small town versus the mayor of <laughs> London. You know, it, in theory, it's the same title, but in reality, you know, not, not quite the same level of power, so... Sure, I get what you, you mean. Know, oh. Didn't necessarily mean that they were all that important in the grand scheme of things, yep. but you know, for a brief while, it did. It gave me a bit of an ego boost. 
I wonder how many families have those um, scrolls because my my grandparents have got one for um, Pithers with a coat of arms and it basically says that eventually we track back to Peters and I've never, I've, I do a one name study and I've actually find it, um, it's very rare that my surname's confused with Peters so I'm not convinced by that argument at all um yeah and, yeah, and i wonder it's framed and put up on the wall yes. like, like, <laughs> and it piqued my interest as a child i found it fascinating so um so it served its purpose i suppose and that it helps you know was uh, yeah, oh, another definitely. thing that makes yeah. you interested in your family history exactly but, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so you know sometimes the you know, the the fancy lies are are just as good at you know, at sparking that that interest yeah, absolutely. I like that. The fancy lies. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good term, actually. <laughs> fancy lies you have in your family history. Um, yeah. I just wanted to, I, I said just before we went live, didn't I? Remind me because I'll forget and I have yes. to tell everyone comment. who's watching, yeah, that you can comment and ask your questions and I can pop them up on screen as we're going along. So please feel free to jump in and ask your questions whilst we're chatting. So you had this um, big Irish family? Yeah, big enough. I mean, you know, my, uh, you know, my dad has uh, six siblings. My mom has only three. But like, you know, as you go back in the generations, you know, like, you know, my grandparents all had a lot of siblings. Their parents would have had a lot of siblings. So you know, like a lot of Irish families, once you start going back. Typically, you do encounter, uh, you know, just grows and grows and grows. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh, um, Daniel's just saying, Daniel's just popping up to wave hello. We thought that we thought <laughs> Daniel was another fantastic Irish genealogist, and we thought that yes. he'd probably be popping up. So, hi, Daniel. Um, <laughs> okay. So, what what kind of things did you um, start discovering? Can you can you tell me about any of your favorite friends um, or your favorite ancestors? There were, there were a few. Of course, you know, was, um, I started doing some relatively recent research looking into my paternal grandfather because like I always remember him as being a very quiet man. Like, you know, very like he you know, loved his his grandchildren, always had great time for us, but he died when I was only about nine years old. So I never got to an age where I could start asking him questions. And I remember you know, there'd always been, you know, I'd been aware that he had spent, you know, he'd been locked up at one point. Okay. And I, you know, only a few years ago, through one of my mom's cousins who was back from Australia, who'd uh, done an interview with his father, who was my grandfather's brother, that he'd basically like, you know, gotten his father's life story and that's not filled in some blanks. And I was able to go up to the National Archives in Dublin and find out some more information. So it was all, it was basically tied up with Irish politics in the 1940s and the fact that Ireland was officially neutral. But the the Allied powers, particularly our neighbors in in Britain and across the pond in the USA, weren't particularly happy with this decision to stay neutral. 
And there's always a fear on the part of the Irish government that given the you know any pretext that they would invade and just you know seize Ireland's resources for themselves mm. is a justification of sort of oh well you know we're in a war we need your ports for for our navy we need oh, all your other resources to for our army and at this time some members of the IRA which was a you know a somewhat different organization than the one I think that most people would be familiar with nowadays from all the troubles in Northern Ireland. This was a certainly not quite on the same scale, but, you know, some members did start a, a, you know, wanted to set up a bombing campaign in British cities on sort of the idea that, well, look, you know, while Britain is distracted with the war, this is a chance for us to sort of to make our point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to fight freedom. Fight freedom, or yeah, whatever definition of freedom. Yeah, yeah, I'd say. Yeah, I'll say it with. So the Irish government said, "You know, us, it's it's safer if we just you know we start locking up anyone who is a member of this group, regardless of their their ideology, because there was a lot of." Even though they all had you know, the name of the IRA, there was a lot of different ideologies within it. Mm-hmm. You had those who were, that's the best way to put it, I suppose, were kind of more traditional, who sort of, oh, well, you know, their fathers or other relatives had been active during the Irish War of Independence in the 1920s. They saw us as carrying on that. And then you had others who were much more left wing who would have been sort of you know, attracted to communist and socialist socialist ideology mm-hmm. and all of these different different ideologies didn't always get along sure so you know they all got you know, shoved into an internment camp in the current in county kildare which is uh for you know, people interested in horse racing, that's you know, there's a big uh, race course there now. So it was, you know, fancy, you know, it was very interesting for me reading up on that. And sort yeah. of learning about, well, you know, you know, that you know, he didn't, it wasn't necessarily that he'd done something wrong, that he was a terrorist or criminal. It was simply just that, you know, he was, you know, sort of on the wrong side of things as far as the government were concerned. Okay, that's really interesting. Yeah. Do you think with Irish history uh, um, and the, the kind of, especially the political side of Irish history, that you have to be kind of quite aware of um, areas of grey and kind of trying to... Oh, most Trying to most interpret definitely. political pasts not necessarily through modern eyes. Do you think that's fair to say it's probably... I think so. And in fact, Irish yeah. And in fact, you know, at the moment I'm I'm reading a fantastic book called The Irish Assassins by a historian named Julie Kavanagh. And it's about uh, the murders of two British assass- two British officials in Dublin in 1882. And it came at a time when there was a lot of tension in Ireland over land ownership and there was this you know political campaign for for home rule 
for Ireland and the murders almost led to this sort of a complete breakdown. But, you know, you have, you know, you have these politicians who, on the Irish side, and some of them were, all publicly, they made a big thing of condemning the murders afterwards. That's part of you know, some of their language. We could look back at it and see it as very inflammatory. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's funny because, um, oh, I've just had a comment come through from Jane, actually. Uh, so Jane is saying, I find Irish research challenging, but confess I haven't spent a lot of time on it yet. Four of my husband's two times great, great grandparents emigrated from Ireland, Claire Tipperary, Wicklow and Kildare. Yeah, we'll, 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 we will touch on immigration a little bit, actually. Yes. I am. Um, yeah, I was, um, I was just going to say being um, British, I've got my echo back. Sorry, hang on. Uh, so being British, can you still hear me okay? Okay, yeah, being British, um, I didn't do anything, I don't think, or very, very little on the history of England and its relationship with Ireland and vice versa um, at school. So obviously I'm at an age where I remember, I do remember the Good Friday Agreement being being signed, but my my knowledge of Irish history is it is very weak and it's very little. And most of it comes from my ex-partner who's Northern Irish and, and <laughs> his interpretation of things and, and explanations of things. Not He's not particularly political, but, you know, just kind of explaining. Yeah. And he was always really gobsmacked about how little we did it at school, did anything at school. So... I don't know how much that's changed over the generations. <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't like to comment, um, but um, I'm just wondering if you are completely new to Irish history, especially sort of Irish 20th century history, um, and um, but then also the, the implications further back of English landowning in Ireland, where, where can mm. you kind of start to kind of find your feet to kind of get to grips Ooh, with that some is, of that history, do you think? Yeah, that's quite tricky. I think, I, yeah, I think a good starting point is with the the Act of Union in 1801. Because what that meant is that the Irish Parliament was closed down. All the Irish MPs had to take their seats in Westminster. And any legislation from then on governing Ireland was passed in Westminster. And that that has big implications then for genealogical records. Because, you know, the the sort of records that we have, say, for example, our civil registration is based on the civil registration system used in England and Wales. Our census schedule for at least up until the establishment of the Irish Free State was on the same schedule as England and Wales. So I've always been told that Irish genealogy is uh, is harder than um, English history, not necessarily than Welsh history, because that has its own Welsh genealogy, because that has oh, its own yeah. <laughs> as I'm well versed in with all my yes. babies. Um, but um, do you think that's true? Do you think Irish research is harder or do you think it's just different? different um, I think it's a bit of both. Uh, because you know, obviously you know, a lot of material was lost when the, in the public record office fire of 1922. So in some cases that does, if you're trying to, you know, if you're trying to fill in gaps, that's, you know, for example, you know, we have the, the missing census records. So we only have, the only full census records we have which survive are 1901 and 1911. 
And then there are some fragments, like literally like only a few pages from some of the earlier census. Okay. You know, and many you know, a lot of those were lost when the public record office fire, and then others were were simply pulped during World War One due to a paper shortage. Okay. So you know, that does make this it's harder. It means that you you end up having to rely more on other records. You know, you might not necessarily be able to track individuals with the same sort of precision that you can with UK and US records. You end up having to rely more and say, well, okay, you know, I have the head of household here at this time. Now can I find a maybe some church records or you know the civil registration records for them. Sure. And um I mean I suppose on the plus side quite a lot of Irish genealogy is on records are online freely. Oh they are yeah and that's I think something that's yeah, something I think which uh, catches people by surprise because they know yeah. there was a a lot of complaints about the uh, upcoming release of the the, you know, the British census records and the fact that they're going to, you know, you'll have to pay a certain fee for, for each record, whereas in Ireland, a lot of our, you know, surviving records are freely available. Like, for example, with the, the civil registration, like, you know, in the UK, you have a free BMD. Yep. But that only gives you the index. If you want to, you know, like, say, if you're looking for, you know, maybe you have a few individuals with the same name, born roughly the same time. You're going to have to order those records and spend money ordering those records from the GRO to get them. Whereas with Irish records, you know, you have birth records up to 100 years, marriage records, I think, up to about 70, and then death records up to about 40 years. But you can actually, you, know, you can see those available for free. Yeah, it makes a it makes a massive difference, especially it if does. you yeah. are lucky and hit a slightly more unusual name. Um, but yeah, no, I, that is one thing that I think people do forget about Irish genealogy, and and also like you said that there are, are alternatives. So the records that you want might have been destroyed, but I'm sure somebody, I'm sure I listened to a talk, and I'm sure I did it. But I could be lying. <laughs> it could be a false memory. It could be that I heard the tip and haven't actually done it. But I'm sure I heard somebody say that um, dog licenses, people applying for licenses for owning a dog, which I think are on Find My Pass. Yep, they're was on good, Find My Pass. was a good alternative. And I, I'm sure that I is, have looked yeah. at them. I think and so. then you can also okay. find, like, you know, the, the course records for where someone was fined for not having a license. So Okay, okay. That's really a useful tip. Yeah. So and what about... Newspapers, are there a lot of newspapers? There is a great coverage. Um, there a lot of stuff is available on the Irish newspaper archive, but then there are also some Irish newspapers which are available as part of the British newspaper archive. Yeah, okay, great. So I'd say, oh, it's it definitely recommends you know a subscription to both sites if possible. And now is a very good time to do it because you know, there are a lot of uh, pre-Christmas sales. So yeah, I think there's a fifty percent off offer on at the moment for Irish mm. newspapers. I think. There I think. Is, I, yeah. I, I haven't used them personally, so I can't comment. Yeah, but, but it is you know it is a great resource, especially for later when you start to get obituaries. I mean, that might even just for you know, getting some context on local history. Okay. 
But I would, you know, would warn though when using Irish newspapers, be very aware that just like today, each newspaper had its own particular ideological slant. So you get some newspapers, you know, even in Cork, that were predominantly, uh, you know, catering to Church of Ireland, Unionist, sort of very establishment, middle and upper class. And that, you know, that has a big impact on the type of stories that, that you find in them. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a really, really good tip, actually. Going to normally in a newspaper, you can see who printed it and who published it, and actually going and having a look and googling who they were and what their affiliations were is is really well worth doing, definitely. Um, and sometimes people also say that a bit like Welsh surnames that Irish surnames can make it harder. Um, do, again, do you think that's true? And and can uh, you explain, explain yeah, how Irish surnames is. work. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, with some surnames it can be you know for example my own surname of ryan is one of the most common irish surnames but you know it is predominantly concentrated in the province of munster here in sort of you know, the southwest corner of the country um but yeah surnames you know, occasionally you will find some surnames are very concentrated on a specific county or a specific region. Okay. So and you can you're... use that for, for sort of trying to narrow it down a bit. Yeah, I was just going to say, so I think one of the most frustrating things that can happen is when you're doing your research in certainly um, in England, Wales, and you find somebody on the census and it says birthplace, island yeah <laughs> and there's no narrowing down you're like oh so then you're 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 you know you're battling a potential hole in records plus uh no narrowed down place plus yeah, a it's... very common surname but but I, it's a really good tip that actually just checking to see whether that uh surname has got certain lo local ties is really worth well worth doing because at least it's a starting point it doesn't necessarily mean they're definitely from that area but it's oh uh, yeah but you know, it's maybe it was, maybe yeah. rather than looking at the whole of Ireland, maybe start there and then work your way out yeah. <laughs> and there is yeah. a there is a great resource for for names and um, the Irish genealogist john grenham on his website he has a johngrenham.com he has a fantastic surname search so if you input the irish surname it brings you up a little map and it shows you sort of the distribution of that surname in the mid 1800s. Okay, okay. Um, tantalizingly, I've got an ancestor who has got an Irish place name as a middle name, but I don't think mm. they're Irish, which is really, <laughs> I think they were British soldiers based in Ireland. Okay, <laughs> is, yeah. It's, but it's curious as to why this place, I can't remember what it is now, it begins with W. Uh, was this Waterford or? Waterford, that's it. Yep, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, all I could think of was Westmoreland. I was like, it's definitely not Westmoreland. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, when you get something in your head, you're like, don't say that, don't say that. Yeah. And then, you know, <laughs> um, yeah, no, Waterford, which is curious. Um, uh, so, yeah, <laughs> it's always been a bit of a tantalising one. Um, so, um, talking about surnames and then, like, trying to, you know, finding somebody that was just born island and then trying to trace back. Um, obviously, immigration is quite an important part of um, oh, Irish yeah, history. It's, it's as well. valuable, yeah. Um, uh, at a high level, why 
what are some of the reasons why Ireland has quite a high level of uh, immigration, certainly in the past? Um, well, you know, the famine in the, the 1840s was a, a major part of that. But also, you know, even after the famine, Ireland remained quite poor. You know, you had big families. There wasn't necessarily much in the way of inheritance prospects. Because, you know, if you have a, a plot of land roughly the size of your back garden, and that's like your entire property, and you have to somehow support, say, a family of maybe eight or nine on that. And then, you know, when it comes down to the inheritance, I mean, maybe one or two of them will get lucky. Maybe they'll, you know, there's a family up the road with only daughters and they've known to inherit so they can, you know, they can get some land that way. But for the rest of them, then, you know, emigration is the only real prospect and you know the idea being that well they can go off to England or the USA or Canada or Australia New Zealand pretty much anywhere else in the world that you know where there's more land there are better prospects and then they can send some of that money home yeah and you know a great resource is you know a lot of local archives will have copies of these letters that were sent home and some of them can be I sort of was, you know, kind of, um, you know, sometimes, you know, say, oh, you're one of your daughters goes off and, you know, gets a job in New York and you're constantly writing saying, oh, well, you know, you're being sort of a bit passive aggressive in terms of, well, you know, oh, I'll thank you very much for the money you, you sent home last month. We just about <laughs> got by on a statue of, you know, very... Irish mammy source of, you know, I'm not saying you're not sending home enough money, but... <laughs> but I'm you know, not, not saying it either. Not, not saying it either. You know, oh, your sister who's, you know, you know and even who has, you know, oh, her own kids look after in England. Oh, well, she sent home even more. So it's that sort of, you know, you're pushing them against each other. So it was... That's amazing. <laughs> Yeah. What a find. That's amazing. I love that. Um, do you think <laughs> do you think that history of uh, I appreciate it's probably a really difficult question to answer, but do you think that history of immigration is quite important to Irish culture? Um, oh, I think it is. I think it is a major part of it because without this without that Irish immigration, I don't think that you would have you know, kind of you know, the independent Ireland that exists today. Because for a lot of the big Irish political movements were funded by monies coming in from Irish Americans. So, you know, that was a very big, big part of us. And um, it's funny, actually, because when you I obviously I'm aware that there are Irish stereotypes. But it was only when I came to do the um, the picture for our for our show for our episode and I was yeah. something that I wanted a fa- I like to have faces on my pictures for twice removed because I think they're more engaging so I was looking for a face um, and eventually I found the young lad with the Irish map on his face but trying to look for a picture to put up Ireland was really difficult I thought it's a lovely <laughs> countryside ones but I thought well if you don't know Ireland you wouldn't necessarily know it was you know but um, lots and lots of people in pubs 
drinking uh, <laughs> like big uh, lots and lots of big groups of people drinking dressed in green with um you know shamrock hats on and um pictures of people playing um oh, fiddles and the music stuff yeah. and it, it kind of made me realize actually i took a step back and i was like wow i hadn't realized quite how ingrained <laughs> those kind of stereotypes are into um into kind of wider culture really and um yeah i don't know whether that's um maybe something to be aware of when you're researching your family history to be kind of aware of stereotypes like the the stereotype that irish is a uh you know perhaps heavier drinkers maybe or more fun loving or more outgoing yes like whether it could be quite dangerous, I suppose, to look at your own family history and kind of, especially if you haven't met anyone from Ireland, kind of then apply those stereotypes um, oh, definitely, yeah. to the past or to your own family yeah. history. I think it also comes out to what we were saying about you know, those shades of grey. Mm. Uh, because, for example, you have a lot of Irish people who served in the British Army in World War One. I. I think for those sort of not familiar with Ireland, they might be quite shocked at this. They might be wondering, well, you know, why were they they so willing to to enlist and put their lives at risk for for Britain? You know, why weren't they staying in Ireland and you know fighting for for independence? And you know, you have to explain that. Well, it was a lot more complicated back then because you know there were so many there were so many incentives for you know, young men to enlist in the British Army at that time. You know, like a big uh, thing that was used in propaganda was, oh, you know, look at poor Catholic Belgium being plundered by the Germans. And that's okay. sort, of, you know, sort of, like, you know, using that as instead of like, you know, oh, you know, Irish people, are you going to, you know, stand by unless you're, you know, your fellow, this country that you so much in common with, are you going to let this, you know, let it suffer? Yeah, and playing up on your faith as well, you know. Oh, have, yeah. Like and then there was also a lot of um, appeals to to masculinity and male chauvinism. Like one of my favourite recruiting posters that I've come across is this, this man and woman standing in a field and the woman is pointing to the horizon where you see flames and smoke and you know little caption saying Belgium and she said to the man will you go or must I sort of like you are you madly enough to to take up arms and fight this war or must I sort of you know put you to shame and and do it for you yeah absolutely so there was all this sort of stuff you know this yeah had, and then I suppose you, know, if you thought it was a phony war as well. You thought it was going to be, you know, they didn't know it was going to be a four-year war. Oh, they didn't. Months. That's it. Yeah, it was, it was you know, especially if you're, you know, you're a young man, maybe you're thinking, well, oh, you know, my only prospects are to to inherit, you know, inherit the farm from my father, or I want something more out of life. I'll sign up in the army, I'll get a sense of adventure, and, oh, I'll, get, oh, I'll come back with money from it, and... Yeah, I suppose as well. There was also the you know, oh well, you know, the women will you know will will flock to a you know, to a man in uniform. So. <laughs> oh, we do. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, um, going back a step to when we were talking about immigration and we were talking about uh, talking about large families, does that um, 
I'm guessing that's got some some benefits in that you have like all these people to explore um, and you know they're kind of still related to you and you can go off down tangents but uh, how do you kind of manage uh, like how personally do you manage keeping all these different people especially when they have the same names I know there's some of the naming traditions Catholic naming traditions as well yeah um of, of using the same name as middle names or or the same name as a first name and a different middle name to distinguish people. Um, how do you kind of keep track of all of those people <laughs> in your head or on your software? Or how do you kind of manage it? Uh, it sometimes it can be quite tricky. And yeah, I actually, yeah. I've come across situations where you have, say, oh, maybe there's like a Patrick Ryan born, say, oh, 1850. And then there's another Patrick Ryan, seemingly to the same parents, born a few years later. And, you know, like I'm scratching my head trying to figure out, well, what's going on? And a lot of time, the only assumption I can make is, well, that's, you know, the first Patrick must have died. And then they said, oh, well, you know, they'll just, they'll, you know, keep the name and use it for another child down the line. So sometimes it can be tricky, especially in the period before death records started appearing with the civil registration. Mm. Well, unfortunately, we don't have burial records in Ireland until 1864. Okay. So that that does sometimes can make it tricky. And I have run into that in, you know, once I get back to, say, like, you know, the early 1800s, where, you know, I'm sorry, I'm looking for a marriage record and... I have two individuals with the same surname, you know, the exact same name, living in the same townland, and two different, you know, maybe they both married women of the same first name. And it's you know, quite tricky trying to figure out, well, okay, which one of these is the correct marriage for my ancestor? Yeah. Yeah, it, it definitely can get really, really tricky. Funnily enough, I have a um a Martin Webster who um who no Irish connection I don't think but they are Catholic so maybe maybe if I go farther back they might be um but he was born according to census he was born in 1818 to Susanna and Martin and uh, and and goes on and gets married and has children and things but the problem is I've also found a baptism for a Martin Webster Martin's an unusual first name in this period a Martin Webster born baptized in 1818 who and, and a death three years later so I'm like, so did the same family have two Martins? Yeah. And my 1818 one actually wasn't born in 1818, but somehow was picked up that year and has carried it on. Or are there two families with called Martin and Susanna both having Martins? But that seems kind of unlikely. I've not really found mm. another Martin and Susanna together in Bethnal Green in London. But yeah, it's, um, yeah, so I can relate is what I'm saying. Yeah, but yeah <laughs> the, the, it becomes really tricky. And, yeah. and I've certainly come across families where they've got, um, you know, like you say, two Johns. And the and the only thing that I can think of is that one of the children was ill and they thought, oh, that child might die. So we're going to name our next child, John. But then the original John, you know, got better and survived and they ended up with yeah. children called John, <laughs> which must have been so confusing. <laughs> they must have had nicknames. I I don't that's know what they are. <laughs> yeah, that's also why your middle names were so important. Yeah, yeah. As a child, I desperately wanted a middle name. I don't have one, so I've made up for it with all my kids. But yeah, I think middle names, especially in um, uh, Irish genealogy or, or, or more Catholic families, can be quite important, actually. Um, yeah, I'm sure I found a whole a whole family once where all the daughters had the same first name. 
like four or five of them. Oh but they were God. all like, but all like, but all like Mary Therese, Mary. I'm trying to think of another kind of, you know, quite common Catholic. Name. Yeah. Yeah. But they, it was obviously they were obviously all went by their middle names, but officially their first names were all the same. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah, I just I've just noticed we're just over halfway, so I just wanted to remind anyone if you do have any questions or comments, then um, please feel free to to jump in and um, you know interrupt my rambling as well <laughs> as I do as I think of things. So, what are some of your um, favourite Irish resources? Do you think? Oh, um, well, obviously the census records are fantastic. Particularly, you know, once you get to 1911, and they really start to record so much more detail you know when they actually start to tell you the you know, what types of illnesses people had how many children had been born how many were still living all these sorts of details are are so important and the way our census website is set up on the national archives you can actually just say okay let me do a random search like say oh how many blind blacksmiths were there living in, you know, such such a county in 1911 or okay. something else, yeah. which I think can be can be quite useful for anyone doing a say a one place study. Yeah, absolutely. Learning more about you see, okay, how many people of such such an occupation did we have in the town at this time and. Yeah, actually, even if you found your own ancestor was something like an uh, like a, a blacksmith, trying to find out like was he the only blacksmith in the town, or did mm. he have competition, and how did that affect his work? So yeah, I could see lots of yeah. lots of ways that could be really really useful and interesting when you're start, especially when you're starting to write up your stories and kind of think of that context. So, um, and another another thing that I was thinking about as well as I was. Um, uh, getting ready to chat to you was about the and I was looking through the pictures for the images how beautiful Ireland is and um, all the different landscapes and I kind of wondered how much you think that's kind of shaped um, the lives of Irish people in the past uh, especially when you were working on the land more oh um, I think it is you know I think it is very um, important because you know certain certain areas are very fertile like, for example, you know, the area where my own ancestors are from is referred to as the Golden Vale. Because, you know, it has like, um, like the grass is so good for, for dairy, for, you know, for, for raising castle. Okay. Uh, but then you have other areas like, say, the Burren in County Clare, which is much, much rockier. The soil isn't quite as good. For that, so I think you know that had you know that certainly has had a major impact on on the lives of ranchers, especially when you know there's say a famine of some sort, because typically those living in the west of Ireland, because the you know, quality of the land wasn't as good, and they were relying much more on subsistence farming to survive, that they were sort of hit hardest by by these disasters if you if you manage to trace your family back to that 1840s can you pretty much guarantee that they would have been affected by that famine just by just by sheer numbers or certainly if they were um you know if they weren't wealthy as long as they weren't wealthy 
um, is it kind of you know because I was trying to I, I think um, I think it was Tara Miss Frugloom was trying to explain to me the scale of the um, the famine um, and I think that's something that maybe people don't always understand. Yeah, because I suppose we always saw you say, sorry, I've just seen the statistics that like, oh, you had a population of 8 million that was, you know, through death and immigration was essentially halved. Um, but it was, because it wasn't just about the potato crop failing, that it had massive uh, economic repercussions as well. Because even if you're a relatively well-off landlord, most landlords at that time were actually severely in debt. They were they were surviving on credit. You know, like a lot, uh, you know, which yeah, you know, I think we saw with um the you know the financial crash a few years ago. That often those who present themselves as being really wealthy and sort of you know living it up, you know, you find that they're maybe you know they don't actually necessarily have that much money in hand. Yeah, they just have a really good credit. <laughs> Yeah, and that's, yeah. that makes a big difference. And then, so, you know, this, something like the famine hits, your your tenants can't afford to pay that rent because, you know, they can't feed themselves. They can't, you know, they don't have the energy to work. And then, so, you know, you find yourself in this. And I know from my own ancestors, that's <clears throat> the, the landlords that they were renting from, the Earls of Kingston, that even though there wasn't you know, a huge debt toll from the famine in the area compared to other areas, economically, it still had a major impact because you know, that landlord, those landlords, they actually had to sell off most of their estates. Yeah, I, I think it then becomes really interesting as well when you go back to immigration about looking at who decided to stay as well. Because I, I think sometimes we can get... Um, quite excited about our immigrant ancestors and, and imagine what it was like to, to leave home and, and go live somewhere new and have to start up. And I completely understand that. They should definitely, definitely be celebrated. But I think not at the price necessarily of thinking about those people that had to make that hard decision not to go or to stay home and how um, what that was like to see other people leave. Um, I always think yeah, I think sometimes there was. A, yeah, I think sometimes there was even you know, a degree of bitterness okay that's interesting that's sort of thing that's you know look you know jack is off over there in london or new york or boston that he seems to be oh he's you know making in tons of money he seems to be you know living it up everything seems to be going great for him and then i'm here sort of you know having to you know, to feed my family and mind the farm and do all this stuff and you know it's sort of you know that's thing you know isn't this you know oh isn't it grand for the likes of them okay okay again you said that sort of yeah, you know yeah. that's passive aggressiveness which <laughs> which seems to be a team with uh with Irish families that's really you know that's so you did get that um I like you know like those emigrants they they were probably struggling quite a bit as well. You know, yeah. some of them, like I have heard stories of those like they come back maybe once or twice a year and they'd they dress up first like you know they'd they might have this one good suit which they never wore else, but they they'd wear it just for that and they'd they'd be making a big thing that's you know making out how great their lives were but then when they went back they're probably living in like you know a tiny 
you know, tiny apartment or tenement. You know, maybe they were like working 12 hour days in a factory. You know, maybe their lives weren't necessarily all that great either. I think Plus, maybe you, know, you sort of just had to, you know, you had to keep up that, you know, that pretense. Yeah, that's interesting. I may, and maybe, maybe that's again why some of the Irish um, traditions are so like ingrained. So, so the, in, into the stereotype of what an Irish person is like. But I'm thinking about things like music mm. and folklore and those kind of richer cultural things. And I think maybe actually leaving somewhere makes those stronger because you oh, want to, yeah, you want you to know, take you them do. with you and remember. Yeah, them, um, you do see that in a lot of um, immigrant yeah. populations. That's, you know, somebody like you know, the Irish in London or New York are probably more Irish <laughs> in terms of you know, keeping up like sort of like you know, the the traditions than than those of us. Yeah, and I guess here. I guess when you go back home though, it gives you something in common again, doesn't it? If you've gone off and uh, you know, if you ever got to go home, because obviously our, some of our ancestors never got to go home once they'd left, they'd left. But if you're looking at kind of later migration, mm. um, if you did maybe go get to go home once or twice when you did get home, your life would have been so different to the people that you'd originally left. But having that connection of shared stories and um, shared music and a shared cultural identity could kind of maybe bridge that, maybe. Um, oh, yeah, definitely, yeah. It's... Uh, James just said, many who travelled oh, yeah. to Australia and on to New Zealand were in mining communities and the like with high child mortality, yeah. That's interesting. Thank you, Jay. Oh, it is. Very, yeah, and that's also something to... Keep in mind, you know, when you're looking into immigration, you know, sort of like, you know, why were they, what sort of jobs were they, were they immigrating to? Yeah, absolutely. I, I always think with a lot of our ancestors, it was like, oh no, the devil in the deep blue sea, isn't it? They're kind of, <laughs> yeah. out of out of the frying pan and into the fire so often because there weren't the choices. And I think, I think sometimes maybe, um, especially when you're first starting out, I think maybe sometimes you can forget that. You can kind of think, oh, you know, why am I not just bored? <laughs> why didn't they do X? And then you kind of think, well, because they, they, they couldn't, because they had no social security and they had no medicine and they had, well, they didn't have, yeah. they had no penicillin and they didn't have a, a natural health system. Yeah, and I mean, you know, if you want to see, system, yeah. you know. like if you want to see, oh, like for medicine, you might be relying on, say, you know, the local midwife for a lot of this. Because, you know, like being able, to, being able to actually get a doctor in would be so expensive. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's something kind of no matter where your ancestor was from, to a certain degree, that's universal, isn't it? I think uh, certainly in Western cultures. Um, mm. OK, so I'm conscious that we've got um, only 10 minutes left. So <laughs> I wanted um, maybe maybe I should just ask, you know, if you if you could kind of tell anybody anything about Irish history, Irish genealogy, what's the what's the <laughs> thing that makes you love it so much, or or makes you so passionate about it? What, um, what would you like to share if you could share <laughs> any story? Or <laughs> um, oh, you can think it's good. okay. I can hum. Yeah, distract <laughs> the viewers with my um, jazz hands. Well, yes, again, you know, you find you know, those um, when you find those local traditions. Yeah, I think that's always fascinating because you know, like what you were saying about the about the culture. Because I one of my favorite record sources is the the National Folklore Collection. 
And as part of that, there is a schools collection. What this involved is in the 1930s, school kids, usually about nine or 10, they were given notebooks and they were told, go out, interview your parents, grandparents, neighbors, you know, anyone in your area who has some, you know, some stories of folklore. And, you know, a lot of the time it's the, you know, it'd be the usual folklore about buried treasure or ghost stories or something like that. But then on occasion you will get some, you know, there will be you know, some nuggets of local history buried in that. Because often you might say, oh, well, you know, there's a reference to a local field that was named after a certain family. And, you know, maybe that family you know, emigrated, maybe they're all gone, but the name survives. It's interesting how um, I, I, Irish, you could say that Ireland's had quite a hard history in a lot of ways. Um, and yet we associate like the luck of the Irish. being lucky. <laughs> yes. uh, And also it's just thinking about like, just completely thinking out loud um, associating like the little people and, and fairy tales with, um, but fairy tales, not as in kind of Disney fairy tales, but. Oh, definitely not. Tales, but kind of older fairy, fairy fairy yeah. tales, you know, with, um, with Ireland, I, I wonder. I wonder. I don't. I don't expect yeah. you to know the answer, but I just wondered why that is. It's. it's well, I think a big part of it was the, the fact that, you know, like electricity didn't come to rural areas until the nineteen thirties and nineteen forties, and so that meant that before you had radios, television storytelling was yeah you know, that was how you kept entertained and that was how you passed down those stories but also like i found myself that from years ago back when my uh, grandmother was still alive i remember i was staying up in you know like she'd she'd moved down to a little house in the village and my aunt had had taken over the old family house. And I remember, you know, staying in this, you know, it's a, you know, farmhouse. There is, you know, nearest, nearest neighbors are like a mile up the road. And suddenly, you know, when you're, you know, you're surrounded by pitch blackness. And no matter how rational you think you are, you suddenly find yourself here jumpy in nearly every sound. Okay. Like, you know, maybe like you hear like, you know, a fox, you know, out in the distance or even, you know, with the dog start barking at something and all of our, you know, rationality. You know, know, we're sitting here now, we're chatting away on Zoom, we're surrounded by lots of lights and, you know, if someone told you there was a ghost in the house, you'd you just, you know, you'd laugh it off. You wouldn't think anything of it. But if, you know, if all the power in your area suddenly <laughs> went and you were sitting there in pitch blackness, you would find it suddenly very easy to believe in pretty much anything. <laughs> no, I agree. I think you're quite right. I think there is something about, you know, maybe being more isolated or being yeah. in, in quite fantastic landscape as well. Yeah, um, but the, I also the, think the part of it is, yeah. Definitely, I think part of it as well is that 
our ancestors were, you know, life to them would have seemed quite random because we say, you know, they didn't have access to much in the way of healthcare, didn't have anything in the way of social security. And one bad harvest could lead to ruin. Mm. And in that sense, you know, it's, you know, you need to, you need to be able to believe in, in something that you feel will give you luck. And it's something I've come across in a lot of oral histories as well, that there was a, almost a belief that, that luck could be, could be transferred, that there was sort of you know, a finished amount of it in the world. And say that, you know, if you, you know, if you win the lottery tomorrow, I'll be thinking, oh God, you know, your neighbours might be, might be almost expecting like the house to collapse or something. Okay, because you've had your lot in life. Yeah, basically, you know, oh God, you know, Nestle has used up all the luck. <laughs> luck for today. <laughs> you know, we're, all, <laughs> <laughs> we're all, you know, we're all doomed. You know, yeah, the rest of us are going yeah, to go yeah. bankrupt or... So, you know, was that, so I think it was just the you know, fact that when life was so was so random that you know you need you know, you can understand people being being superstitious. Oh yeah. I said, you know, and then when they emigrated, you know, they, they brought those those traditions and those superstitions with them. Yeah. As yeah. a way of sort of keeping their culture alive. Yeah, and you don't chance it, do you? I mean, I don't, I know it sounds tough, but I never cross anyone on the stairs because as a child, my mother was told me, don't cross on the stairs, it's bad luck. Um, or put shoes on the table, that kind of thing. There's kind of uh, old wife's tales. And although I don't really believe in them, I still don't do them. Yeah, it's just, that's it. You know, it's like, you know, well, you know, I don't necessarily believe in it, but am I going to risk it? <laughs> Doesn't do any harm not to do it. Yeah, no. Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting that um, you know that, that a country that's quite famous for its religion, for its faith, in, its Catholic faith uh, in particular, I'm thinking of. Although I know not all Irish people are Catholic, yeah. of course. Um, um, you know, and there's obviously strong Protestant faith as well, and lots of other faiths. I'm sure in a multicultural mm. oh, society. Definitely. So yes. you know, but uh, just it's interesting that a place that is quite well known for that is also quite known for being um, associated with like things like fairies and superstition and the little people. It's, yeah, it's a really it is. interesting kind of mix. It um, is, yeah. yeah. Oh well, thank you so much, David. I just You're hang on for a moment in case anyone has any final questions. Sure. I see there's sort of quite a few people watching actually. So um please if you do want to comment with a final question, um then then feel free. Um all the resources that David's kindly mentioned in this interview, I will um pop into a accompanying blog post which will which I will share once yep. it's and up we and should running. also just um because you know, I promised to give you a quick promotion there for any of you who are on Twitter. Uh, follow the As Ireland account this week because our friend Claire Bradley, another fantastic genealogist based in Dublin, has taken over the account this week to tell you all about Irish genealogy. Oh, that's a really good tip. Thank you. Um, yeah, um, Twitter's a great tip, full stop. For it me. is fantastic. <laughs> It's a really good good community there. Um, yeah, so um, I'll put all those resources, including that Twitter link, onto a blog post and 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 send it out. And um, David, where can people come and find you if they want to um, find out a bit more about you and your services? Or um, um, they can you know they can find me on my website uh, ryangenealogicalresearch.com. 
I also have a, you know, I'll be giving a talk in a few weeks for the, the genealogy show, uh, which is December 5th and 6th. And then I'm also talking as part of Roots Tech, Roots Tech Connect, which is another free, you know, which will be free and online again this year, which is in the spring, I think is it February or March? I can't, can't remember exactly when, but... Yeah, sure. Yeah, there'll be no no missing it. So, um... okay. So, if you um, want to get um, uh, David's contact details and uh, you want to be notified of when that blog po blog post comes out and all future episodes of Twice Removed, um, pop over to www.genealogystories.co.uk and you can subscribe to my email list there. Um, you can you can it says daily emails and you're you are welcome to daily yes. emails they are golden tips but if that is a little bit much for you on your very first couple of emails there's a there's a chance to kind of downgrade just to the weekly news <laughs> because i know some people prefer it that way so that's uh, www.genealogystories.co.uk but thank you very much david for joining me you're really welcome it. It really lovely to chat to you i'm going to do that thing where i hit the end broadcast button and then it takes like you know 30 40 seconds <laughs> looking like lemons but <laughs> Small price to pay for the, the joy of history chatting. <laughs> Thank it you. It is, definitely.